However, Is there a message of hope in the midst of troubled times? Can a nation be renewed and restored? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat interviews Christian scholar Dr. Oz Guinness on his recent work, A Free People's Suicide. Dr. Guinness presents several factors that lead to a nation's downfall and gives a stern warning to our nation and the Christian Church. But he also presents a message of hope that should inspire every believer in Christ. Let's join Pat now with part two of his interview with Dr. Oz Guinness. How do you sustain freedom for a democracy that one is large? There was Greek democracy, there were 6,000 people in the city-state of Athens. One has to be a large country, and two, it has to be a lasting freedom. And they're very tough. Of course, today, America's ever... 300 million people. I see. Now, you state that the faith community is weaker than ever. What do you mean by that? Well, our churches. How can more than 80% of Americans still identify themselves as Christian, and yet tiny groups like gays, lesbians, and others have far more cultural influence than we do? The simple fact is the salt has lost its saltiness in America. Now we could give it various names. It's called a crisis of cultural authority. The simple fact is, in the lives of many, many Christians, sadly, faith has lost its authority, called its binding address, and it's become a mere preference. It's very soft. It's just one among the many reasons. But you can see the Christian faith in America is in a kind of meltdown at the moment, and certainly evangelicalism, too. What does evangelicalism mean? No one's quite sure. Anyone can say something new. It used to be clearly defined by certain beliefs, such as a high view of Scripture, and so on. But that's no longer the case. I see. Uh, Why is it? I mean, why do we find, as evangelicals, why do we find ourselves in this condition? Is it the, the preaching, the teaching, ideas of the culture? What do you assess as how we came to this position? Well, it's hard to put it in a sentence or two. My own argument is, it's in another book called The Last Christian on Earth, my own argument is that much of the American church is more shaped by the advanced modern world than it really is by the gospel. And so we're in a kind of cultural captivity. If you look at the church just at the time of the Renaissance, just before the Reformation, um, one of great Oxford scholars, Thomas Linnaco was given a copy of the Gospels by a priest who was a friend, and you know, lay people didn't have the Gospels in those days, only the clergy did. He read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and made a famous remark, either these the Gospels or we're not Christians. In other words, the gap between the Gospels and the behavior of the Church at that time was extreme. And certainly, the same is true today. Well, you said that we're being shaped by the 
culture. What are the dominant ideas of the culture then that threaten or oppose the faith community? Well, Pat, they're not only the dominant ideas. In other words, ideas are often hostile and clear. So if I said relativism or humanism, you know, the average Christian could smell that sort of idea at a hundred yards away. But if you look at the impact on consumerism, where nothing is true or right or wrong, but everything's a matter of choice, and so we have the church of your choice, and the, the disappearance of the word a worship service, and it's become a worship experience, and hopping and shopping, you don't like the music, you don't like the preaching, go down the road to another one that you do like, and so on, and that sort of mentality. And the same is true now of, of doctrines. And so you take people like Rob Pell, who no longer believe in the biblical view of hell or the biblical view of homosexuality. And everything now today is a soft, pliant nose that you can squeeze the way you like. Everything's, And that's the product of consumerism on the church, not of any hostile idea. You know, that's fascinating. You mentioned consumerism. Exactly what do we mean when we say consumerism? Well, consumerism is the whole world produced by a consumer culture. We assess life uh, by how we're doing in terms of goods. Veni, vidi, visa. Uh, when the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. All these little phrases we have. You know, we're in a world where, say, our shopping malls are the real cathedrals of today, not the cathedrals or the churches of the past the shopping malls, and you can see we've exchanged the good life, as people would have put it 2,000 years ago, we've changed the good life for what's called a life with goods. And, of course, underneath that is a huge accumulation of debt, a huge accumulation of junk, and a huge accumulation of stuff, and a whole changed attitude to life that you judge it by the accumulation of stuff you bought and so on. This is the modern world of consumerism. Now, there are many, many problems. It's often said that if the whole world were to live like America lives, you'd need several planets just to sustain it. In other words, once again, it's unsustainable. But Christians should have seen early on, because, you know, the Protestant ethic was hard work, saving, thrift, generosity. And John Wesley Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And in the 1920s, when consumerism started to come in, many of the advertisers and so on were absolutely brazenly open that they were out to undermine the Christian ethic which had shaped America in the past. And sadly, Christians never objected, and we're part of the consumer culture along with everyone else. And now we're beginning to pay for it. Well, now that we're absorbed in the consumer culture. What do you suggest? I mean, how can we change the situation? Well, in that area, as in many others, we've got to go back to the Scriptures. You know, either these are not the Gospels, or we're not Christians. Can we be really living the way of the Gospel, and yet be so weak as we are in American culture? We can't be. So we should have people ransacking the Gospel and say, are we living faithfully to our Lord? and then, by God's grace, seeking to live faithfully according to the way that's outlined in the Scriptures. Put simply, I, I talked about the advanced modern world. The modern world makes evangelism easier, but discipleship harder. 
In other words, in the modern world, more people are more open and searching for new things because of consumerism and so on than ever before. So modern people are described as conversion-prone. But discipleship, which Nietzsche was right about here, described as a long obedience in the same direction. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. That's harder. To really integrate your faith for the whole of life today and not live a fragmented life, that's really tough and difficult today. Right. It seems like we have two extremes sometimes. You have those who totally want to separate from the culture, and then you have those that are totally indulged in the culture. And I think striking that balance is very difficult, we find, in our time, isn't it? Oh, you put it well. You know, the two extremes are to be in the culture and of it, worldly, or to be not in it, not of it, and so otherworldly when no earthly use. Our Lord calls us to be in it, but not of it. Now, that's tough. Now, that requires, first, an engagement, but secondly, a discernment. What is the culture? Where is it good? Where is it bad? And thirdly, the ability to make a grand refusal. Wherever the way of the world is different from the way of our Lord, we say no. And the trouble is, in many, many areas today, the Church has lost the capacity to say no. And the American Church is huge, numerically. It's pathetically weak culturally, and the central reason is it's profoundly worldly. It's not very different from the world. So not only do we have to know the Word of God, but we also need to know the culture and the ideas of the culture that compete against the message of the Gospel. Isn't that what you're saying? Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Again, Pat, I mean, there's a positive angle to the world. You need to understand the world to witness to the world, because that's the context the people to whom we're witnessing. That's positive, the desire to witness. But the negative part of the world, as the New Testament says, hate the world in some ways, there's a kingdom that's over against the kingdom of Christ and his way of life, and that we must resist. Now, the trouble is, when people think of the world, Christians do, they tend to think, well, in the old days, they thought of little no-nos. Don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke. And the 60s came along with all this stress on freedom and threw out those little no-nos. Now we've got no concept of worldliness at all. But even when Christians think about the world, they often think, as I said earlier, only of ideas. So there are certain things all Christians are wary of, relativism, as I said. But when you look at the world in terms of, say, the way it fragments faith, or it's consumerism, or the way it secularizes us, so the supernatural is no longer so real. These are the real dangers of worldliness, and many people have simply not become aware of them. Yes, I speak at a lot of churches where the pastor states, all you need is the Bible. This is the only thing you need to study. You don't need to study anything else. You know, I see a weakness in that, and that they're unable to engage the culture and the ideas around them, and to discern when the ideas of the culture have come into the church. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of pious platitudes around. You know, one of them is Jesus plus nothing. But our Lord didn't say that himself. He talked about rendering to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And he was the one who told us to be in the world but not of it and so on. So it sounds incredibly pious. Jesus plus nothing. Of course, our Lord is primary 
and decisive and our supreme authority. And the scriptures are our high authority. But in the light of the word, we can engage the world. And we may even misunderstand the word if we don't understand the world and how the world is shaping our thinking if we're not aware of it. So beware, <laughs> you obviously are, but we've got to get Christians to beware of these higher-sounding platitudes, which are actually very, very dangerous. Well, you make a great point there. When I was speaking earlier this year in Philadelphia, and the respondent was a, a very eminent scholar, he said the same thing. America today has lost its freedom. And you just take things like even the revelations of the last two weeks of a degree of government surveillance. I mean, we think of Americans hate George III. Americans dislike the Sun King, Louis XIV. They were autocrats, despots. But if you think for a minute, George III and Louis XIV didn't have a hundredth of the power over their subjects that the government today, whether Republican or Democrat, has over the American citizens. And we've seen one more example in the incredible surveillance. And people say, well, in the name of safety and security, why not? This country is no longer the land of the free. Yes, that's quite an incredible point that you make that a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, the capability of the government to exert its powers much more capable today than in many years past. You're absolutely right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll put it another way, Pat, and this is to look towards the future. Presidents like George W. used to talk about democracy and freedom as if they were one. But anyone who knows the history of democracy and the history of the great critics of democracy from Plato down know that it's always been predicted that when democracy degenerates, it produces tyranny. I mean, Tocqueville, for instance, who wrote Democracy in America, what he predicted was he reached the day, and we're here now, where on the one hand, like a horseshoe, the two extremes would be very close to each other. And one extreme would be the rampant individualism. I was talking about the libertarianism. Rampant individualism. The other extreme would be what he calls soft despotism of the tutelary government, what Maggie Thatcher called the nanny state. Now, if you took away many of the benefits the government gives us today, you'd have half of America complaining bitterly. We want them. But the fact is, these things are undermining our freedom. And you can see American democracy, even worse in Europe, American democracy degenerating, just as the prophets predicted in the past. And many people don't care enough because they're doing, they're doing okay themselves and they want safety and so on. And freedom is disappearing. Well, you know, as we look to the future, it looks like there's two ways America can go. You know, continue to slide downhill, or we can have hope in going in another direction. What would it take to move America back into a direction where they are able to sustain their freedom? Well, I mentioned three things in the book. One would be relatively easy, would be first to restore civic education. That's the way the notion of freedom is passed from generation to generation. The public schools used to do it. They no longer do. That could be restored. What do you mean by civic education there? What I mean is it was always understood in a free society, everyone's born free. Not everyone's up to it. You have to be educated for liberty. You have to be trained for liberty. 
It was called liberal or civic education, and that's disappeared. Uh, certainly the private schools teach it still, but not many of the public schools. The second thing that's absolutely necessary is the restoration of a civil public square. In other words, openness in public life for all the faiths to enter and engage public life, to get over the crazy ideas we've had in the culture wars in the last 50 years. But the third, and for us by far the most important thing, we need a revival and reformation in the church. The deepest problem is us, not liberals, not secularists, not the state. Deepest problem is us, and that's where we need to begin. Now, you talked about revival and reformation. What kind of revival are you talking about? What kind of, of reformation do we need? Well, you can see that wherever the church departs from the truth, wherever the church loses the life of the Spirit within the church, revival is the restoration of that life, reformation is the reformation of, of restoration of that truth, so the very structures of the church are changed, let alone millions of Christian individuals. So the 16th century Reformation, for all its faults, and there were some, was a magnificent return to the gospel. Or take revival, the first awakening, 1739 onwards, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitfield, was a magnificent outpouring of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, which was immensely significant. Now, since the rise of the advanced modern world, we've seen small revivals here and there, but nothing of a culture-wide, nationwide revival to rival either the Reformation or the First Awakening. And that's what we need in America today. As I say, we've got to humbly say in public, too, we are the problem. We're not blaming other people. We Christians are the problem. We will never, quote, win America back by culture warring. That's the huge trap that the Christian right fell into. We are the central problem. You know, that's a great assessment here, and I think you know what you're speaking is indeed prophetic words of truth here. I'm just really curious about revival and reformation. We've had two in our history. Is there the possibility, do you see the possibility of a third kind of national revival for the church in America? Well, the question is, why not? Why not? What I put in the book that's coming out, uh, well, I've got a book coming out in September, another one coming out next year called Renaissance, but this is the way I put it. In the Western world, and it's much bigger than America, we are the product of two earlier great missions to the West. The first was the conversion of the Roman Empire. The second, which is less known, was the conversion of the barbarian people of Europe. And the decline of the church in the West represents the twilight of that second mission. But instead of all the doom and gloom you see in parts of the church, it's all over, isn't it? Yes, it I'd is. say we need to commit ourselves under the Lord to a third mission to the West, knowing we can win the Western world back to our Lord again. Not because it's anything very important as the West, but it's our Jerusalem. It's our hometown. And we've got to care for our Jerusalem before we go out to the uttermost parts of the earth. So yes, the, the Lord can revive us at any moment. And yes, we need to commit ourselves to a determined mission to win the West back again to our Lord. It's not all over. Yes, now that's a very optimistic message that you give here. 
for the individual in the church today who's seeing what is going on in government and in the moral society around him in the public schools what advice or what ex words of exhortation would you be giving him now well i think we should look in scripture at people like daniel in other words he was living at a time when the world as they'd known it had gone that's beginning to happen in america the world of the 1950s the world of our grandfathers has gone we're in a different world, and our challenge is to be faithful in this world that we face now and not to try and cling on to the world of the past as if we could fight for the past to stay. Or a second way of putting that is, think of St. Augustine. His privilege and challenge was to be a leader in Christ after 800 years of Roman dominance as Rome fell. And our similar challenge is, the West has been dominant for 500 years, not very long, but a long time in our understanding. And here we are living in the twilight of the West. So we've got to be faithful to Christ when the world as we've known it has gone. But to be so faithful, not knowing we'll have a wonderful new age ahead or new dark ages ahead, we don't know. But we're so faithful that we may live together in a way that brings hope to a very broken world. Yes, and Daniel was just a small minority, yet was able to bring revival and the knowledge of God to an entire nation. Well, that's right. And, you know, you read in the Psalms, say, the Jews who were in Babylon, uh, who you know, didn't want to sing. They didn't want to sing the Lord's songs in a foreign country. But Daniel, he served the emperor with faithfulness to the Lord with all his heart, and so did his three friends. And we've got to have people like that, who in whatever the times are that are about to come, are fully and faithful and recover Christian integrity and effectiveness, whatever the times are that we're about to face. Well, you know, Dr. Oz Guinness, as we bring the show to an end, I'm here in the state of Hawaii, one of the most liberal states here in the U.S., where they are about to legalize gay marriage and other laws that oppose the gospel here. What message would you give here to the people of Hawaii who, we, as Christians, we seem to be losing the battle here in our society here in Hawaii? What message would you give to the believers in well, the state Pat, of Hawaii? Well, Pat, I'd add one more. I, I mentioned Augustine and further back Daniel. You go back to Samuel. You remember in Samuel's time, he was the judge. So the people wanted to reject him and imitate the surrounding nations and have a king. And at first, Samuel was very offended because it was him they're rejecting. And the Lord says, Samuel, get over it, in effect. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, because the Lord was supposed to be their king. But then he says to Samuel, take them at their word. Tell them what they're choosing. Tell them what will be the consequences of what they choose. And he does that. You're choosing a king, this is wrong, and kings will be X, Y, and Z, and they all were. But then he says, as for me... God forbid that I should cease to, and he talks about his own particular calling. In other words, there's a place for us to say to our culture, whether it's in Hawaii or here in Virginia, you're making this choice, same-sex marriage, for example. It will have disastrous consequences for children and eventually for the republic as a whole. You're making this choice? Don't tell us that we didn't warn you when we made this choice. There will be consequences but we will live differently. And the trouble is, in most of America, not only Hawaii, the Christians aren't very different. Our challenge is to live differently 
and so be faithful to our Lord. Those are wise words from a man who's spoken in front of some of the most influential leaders in the world today, before the British House of Commons, the United States Congress, the leaders in Europe and in Asia. So those are wise words of exhortation for us. Dr. Osgenis also has a great website, osgenis.com, where you can find some great information about him, read some of his articles, and also look at the resources that are available today. His latest book, A Free People's Suicide, Sustainable Freedom and the American Future, published by InterVarsity Press. A wonderful book with a very prophetic message. He speaks as a prophet of our time, giving us not only a message of hope, but a relevant message of warning for our day. Any book by this man you ought to be reading, Dr. Oz Guinness has been our guest. Thank you for being on our show. Great pleasure, Pat. All mine. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes Pat's interview with Christian scholar Dr. Oz Guinness on his latest work, A Free People's Suicide. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire study and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's ministry, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org so that we may continue to present fine biblical teaching from men like Dr. Oz Guinness. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>